You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your helpless host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your host that requires literally every prompt and maybe visual prompts, maybe maybe too much, too many prompts, Shane. We're both non-independent. <laughs> My response was based on your response. So yeah, it's a whole thing. Fair. We are a psychology podcast and we like to just talk about all the psychology things. And lately we have been talking about applied behavior analysis, particularly as it relates to individuals with an autism diagnosis. Sometimes they like to be called autistics. Mm-hmm. And their experience with applied behavior analysis as an intervention, which definitely spans well beyond individuals with who are neurodiverse. It's used in a lot, a lot of different ways, but we have been talking about how it applies to individuals who are neurodiverse. And specifically the experiences that have been noted and some of the, for lack of a better term, controversies or criticisms, maybe criticisms are a better term for that. Yeah. Yeah, the criticisms that have gone on with the field. And just to kind of reiterate, just with any helping profession, there are always going to be criticisms as a budding field, as a maturing field, as as some folks have described it. Growing and developing, that sort of thing. There's going to be growing pains. And yeah. so this is one of the ones that we are talking about is this these growing pains that are going along with this this emergent field. Not that behaviorism is anything new per se. But it is one of those things where now that we're starting to get more traction, starting to develop more interventions and, and more practices, those criticisms are going to come out in a, in a few different ways. This is the sixth part in this series, if you weren't following along already. So if you would like to go back and listen to those, those definitely help set some of the context. But as with all of these, we try to make it so that this discussion will more or less stand on its own. And if you feel like you're missing some information, you might go back and check out some of those These have not been our longer episodes. We tend to try and keep these ones a little bit shorter. Some of them are pretty par for the course, you know, 45, 50 minutes, but we've got some that are sort of closer to the 30 minute, 35 minute mark in there. So they're, I think, a little easier to get through than historically. Initially, our first discussion just outlined what the critique of the controversy, the criticism, what what that entailed. And from there, we talked about a history of the use of punishment and negative reinforcement in behavior analysis. We then talked about how some people remark that those who have been through a ABA therapy intervention can feel inauthentic to the point of sometimes being described as appearing robotic. We then talked about a lack of application of those skills to real world environments. And then finally, that ABA overly emphasizes compliance yes. and obedience. Yep. We've covered quite a bit. And within these discussions, we've covered things like ableism. We've covered discussions on bad practice and stuff like that. And so we try to make them as nuanced as possible so that we can kind of get into the minutia. I mean, we really, really like the detail of these in relation to these arguments, because it's not as easy as yes or no. And if you go back and listen to every single one of the arguments that we've talked about or every one of the discussion points, there are valid concerns in every single one of them. And today's not going to be any different. Absolutely. That I think is a big theme throughout this is looking at everybody has a reason to have the position that they have. And so we want to acknowledge 
those reasons as being legitimate and just provide the nuanced conversation to facilitate a discussion where all people from all sides have their voices represented as much as we're able to do. You know, obviously we are, we're not from a neurodiverse background. We are <laughs> for lack of a better term, I guess, to, white guys rapidly approaching middle age <laughs> <laughs> so come from a very privileged place and nevertheless we are really working on improving ourselves revealing our biases acknowledging our privilege in such a way that we can be open to the experiences of others so that we can do better so that we can provide a nuanced discussion to help other people do better and to be a voice for those who maybe need one if, if possible so not that anybody really needs us and yet we did the white male thing and st stepped in and, and <laughs> pretended like people did need us. And hopefully there's still some value in this discussion. I think it comes back to that that discussion, too, where it's like, you know, if you if you have a voice and you have the privilege and you have the space to do it, use that. Use that to uplift others. Use that to listen. Use that to do better. And that's really what we're trying to do is like we are at this point in time leveraging our privilege to be able to discuss something that is a growing and concerning topic and really have the discussion to be able to bring about some awareness of this. Um, you know, it, we would be remiss to just ignore this and just kind of move on and go on and talk about some other yeah. topic. Like if we just went, if we, you know, we're going to talk about misophonia at some point in time, but if we just went on and just talked about that and skipped over this series of episodes entirely, we would not be leveraging our privilege in a, in a way that would be a catalyst for change or at least getting people to have the discussion. Yeah. Thanks. That's exactly what I was hoping would come across with this is the fact that we could probably leverage some of the influence, some of the privilege that we have to, to make some improvements and sort of be willing to throw ourselves in front of the bus, so to speak, or under the bus is probably how that term goes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so that's what we're hoping to do here. So uh, today we are talking about the, we are on part six of this, as I mentioned before. And what we were talking about is that the methods in Applied behavior analysis can result in this thing called prompt dependency, which is, you know, more or less what it sounds like. And that is that the individual with whom we're working, this neurodiverse individual, they will only demonstrate the learned skill with specific supports or prompts from others rather than doing so independently. So that's the discussion we're taking on as part of our contribution to the series today. Within that, many people who might experience ABA might learn a skill, but only when they are given explicit, frequent, and sometimes even disruptive prompts. So essentially what that says is a learner is going to engage in a skill only when there is something to kind of trigger that or to, to like something else that's not naturally occurring. Like this would be like if you every time you had to use the restroom, somebody told you to go use the restroom every single time versus you going and doing that independently. If you had to have somebody tell you every single time to use the restroom, that would be like an example of how prompt dependency might work. I mean, it is what it sounds like. It's dependent on a specific prompt or cue to do something. And mm -hmm. so you might have someone who that you had been providing supports for, let's say, and that they might learn to talk to somebody, but only if prompted with the conversational cue that had been taught as part of those therapeutic sessions or only if they were prompted to say what to say and when to say it. So if they had, you know, they could do these things, but they would not do so independently. It was only dependent on if you were there or someone else was there to provide 
this is your cue to say these things. Further, we may ask for things to, or try to communicate, but only when prompted to do so. So, for example, like I might walk into a kitchen, I might walk up to a fridge and just stand there and somebody goes, well, what do you want? And you go, I want da 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 da, you know, and then you can access that thing. And that is just another example of how this might happen is like I might get into a space. I might in, I might start to engage in a response or I might lead up to a specific response and not engage in that terminal response, that terminal behavior that we need to access those those things in our life that we're that we're really trying to get. Okay, so always what we're trying to do here is to do our best to characterize the the nature of the critique of the criticism as genuinely and charitably as we can. We're really trying to avoid making any any straw man arguments or set up anything that is a not an unfair representation of the argument being made. So essentially what if I'm understanding this argument the way that it has been presented Essentially, the argument is that these individuals become so dependent on prompts to do anything that they are weirdly ingenuine, inauthentic. Again, almost coming back to the point that they might appear in a way that you might describe as looking sort of robotic just because it's sort of going through rote sort of movements and motions and that they don't self-advocate and they don't actually learn anything sort of like facilitated communication, like very, very prompt dependent. Almost, almost yeah, more so than definitely. anything we're talking about here. <laughs> but so again, <laughs> yeah. If we're representing this fairly, if if this is an accurate portrayal, then this is this is what we understand the arguments to be from the side of people who are either reforming, you know, want, they're arguing in favor of behavior analysis, but in a, in a reform sense that we make improvements, or from those who are saying that it is so problematic that it needs to change radically or be done away with altogether. I believe that that is the nature of the argument as I understood it. So as we kind of dig into this, this is closely related to the issue of lack of generalization, or at least it seems like it. And this is, we talked about this in a, in a, in a former episode where we talked about this issue of generalization and it's, it's very similar. So, uh, you know, we think this, this response to the specific critique is going to be somewhat similar. You know, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about like prompt dependency specifically, but I think that I think that, you know, it is going to be very similar to that argument with generalization. Yes, I, there is definitely some overlap here, but I saw it talked about in such a way that it felt like it was worth taking on individually. So, yeah, as I like to start, let's first say, yes, this is another issue that we are keenly and bitterly aware of. There have been just heaps of articles, book chapters. I mean, poster presentations, workshops, and seminars dedicated to trying to systematically identify what are the most effective ways to fade out, to reduce the amount of prompts that are needed, and to avoid or eliminate prompt dependency altogether, such that you have a smooth transition from learning a skill to being able to use that skill without supplemental support. And the issue here is that most skills are either only learned or most effective, efficiently learned, I should say, when there is some kind of scaffolding or some kind of prompt system in place, right? So like a lot of times when a skill is learned, it is learned with several prompts, several items, several different cues in the environment. They're going to help occasion the behavior so that it can actually occur. And it often occurs in the form of prompting. It might be like, well, what do you say? I mean, we hear this all the time. When we were working with early learners and they, you know, you say like, well, what do you say? I thank you. You know, like you hear that kind of from parents and stuff, you know, what's the magic word, you know, please, can I have this? You know, those are different types of prompts that might occur in the environment. So we are constantly 
in the struggle as behavior practitioners, looking at what is most generalizable, what is fadeable, what is going to be efficient. And that's a gross oversimplification, obviously, but that's what we're trying to look for is like, how do we implement some kind of cue that's going to help set up this behavior to occur and then remove that cue as soon as possible? That's really ultimately a goal that we should be looking at when, especially when it comes to prompting, prompt dependency and generalization issues. Yes. And I think that this is a good time to tell some stories to, I think, both illustrate an example of this as well as make this like fun to listen to because we like stories. We like, you know, hearing about other humans in their lives. Yeah. Generally speaking, not I'm reminded (laughs) of, you know, the experience one might have when your grandparents go to tell a story and they're like, well, and then Beverly, she was with a, a man named George or was that Frank? I forget which one it was. It might have been George because George's mother. And he's just like, oh my God, this is a detail we don't need. But <laughs> let's, um, we're going to do our best to tell a story in a way that is somewhat engaging. I like that your grandpa impression is like a Jimmy Stewart impression. Like, oh, <laughs> listen, I, I don't really know about this. You know, like you're. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't really know if this is a wonderful life. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> I, I went I went from vanilla to sour cream. <laughs> oh, oh, Abraham. Oh, jeez. So I have a story about this that I'm going to share. And then if you have one, you can maybe be thinking yeah. of, or if you have one locked and loaded, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So early on in my training, when I was in my, in graduate school, I was working with an individual who used a picture exchange communication system or PECS as, as it's commonly known in which the child would use either an iPad device. In this particular case, this was before iPads were super common. I'm dating myself, but it was an actual folder that the individual would carry and it had little pictures on it. And so there was, they could flip through the folder to find what they wanted. And then there was a board on the bottom of the folder where they would put the sentence essentially what they were trying to create by using the, the pecs. Usually it was just a couple of pictures, but okay. What this individual learned to do was flip to the different pages and to pull pictures off and stick them on the board. What ended up happening is that they picked the same thing every time. And so we're trying to create an opportunity for this individual to actually communicate what they wanted and what they needed and to respond to like communications from us or from other people by answering questions because their language was so was so delayed we wanted to essentially getting us get in a system as as quickly as possible for can we get you to communicate while we work on developing your vocal expression as well right i think you know, there's going to be some criticism of even that. I understand that. And I think it's something worth digging into at some point using the various types of systems of communication that people have developed, sign language, pecs, vocal, whatever. But let's for this individual, that's where we were. This is a long time ago. So essentially, yeah, what we had to do is every time that we wanted him to communicate in a particular way, we had to prompt him through the motion of which ones to pick. And when it was independent, he just went right back to the same ones he picked every time, even though that wasn't relevant to he was he was either not communicating with us by actually saying what he wanted or needed, or he wasn't. It just didn't mean anything. And it was just sort of like, oh, this is a thing that I do when I have this this board in front of me is I just take these pictures and put them in this order. Right. And so it took a lot to then break that pattern of do this and then this right and to try and have that pattern be really only influenced by the natural cues the natural conversation the natural environment but we definitely saw some 
dependency on us guiding that pattern initially because he wasn't doing it independently. He was just going through the motions, right? So we had to really try and recreate that for him so that it was variable and it was more authentic. And that makes sense. I mean, you sometimes when, when those types of instructional patterns occur or like the, those types of scenarios occur, you have to kind of figure out how to loosen it up. Right. I mean, that's essentially yeah. what it is. I mean, that's that's essentially what when you talk about prompt dependency, prompt dependency is just a very rigid series of events that occur. And like we, what we try to do is loosen it up and get more naturally occurring cues like yeah i think of a woman that i worked with who was who came into treatment as being incredibly prompt dependent you know she would and and this is no exaggeration when we first started assessing and tried to figure out what was going on with her she would wait about 45 minutes to an hour for a prompt she was that prompt dependent wow she would like do things like ask to go to take a shower i mean she would ask to do everything in the environment and then wait for somebody to confirm there was one time where she waited about an hour before she stopped asking entirely. She didn't go and take the shower by herself. She just stopped. Like she just stopped asking and it became a significant issue because it was every single thing. I mean, when I, when I say every single thing, I mean asking to put a shoe on and then asking to put the second shoe on. Jeez. Asking to take bites of food. She was so heavily prompt dependent and it came from a space where she was severely abused. So, so just to be clear, like, that wasn't from previous therapy. That was from a home environment where anything out of order became a significant problem. Mm. So a lot of what we're doing is we're working in a space where we're having to undo this learning history, which is a severely significant problem history, right? I mean, you're talking about a very severe situation and trying to develop her independence and let her know she's safe. She's okay. You're allowed to take a shower whenever you want to take a shower. You can put your shoes on yeah. if you want to put your shoes on. And there's not going to be any sort of adverse consequences as a result of that. So when the conversation of prompt dependency comes up, a lot of times I think of I think of this woman that I worked with because if the concern is that it's coming from an ABA space, it's not that's not the only place that it can come from. Again, that's the first thing I think of is this woman where it's like we worked with her to get her to be more independent so she didn't rely on prompts because she came from a space that was so heavily prompt dependent but in a really coercive conditions. So, you know, there are spaces where that can shape up in, in different ways. That's not necessarily directly related to APA. That is an interesting, uh, an interesting story. Definitely because as you said, this, this was not shaped up as part of a, ther- a therapy or some kind of intervention, which actually got me thinking, you're right, that this is something that can easily occur in a lot of situations. I think kids can become prompt dependent when, when parents are too overbearing. I think that Partners can become prompt dependent when their other partners like controls their environment very heavily. I think employees can become prompt dependent when you have supervisors and managers and bosses who hold information very guarded and who do not train people on the procedures adequately or they do not give them the autonomy to make decisions. Yeah. And then those people feel like they have to come check in with with their boss every time they do anything at all. Yeah, prompt dependency can exist in a lot of different spaces. So we definitely want to avoid <laughs> creating that as much as we can in this particular space. Wow, that's a that's a sad story. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I think it's important to understand that prompt dependency comes from I think it can come from those multiple places. It can come from coercive environments. It can come from those spaces where it's a real problem. I would make the argument though that in behavior analysis, 
I don't know that it comes from coercive environments as much as it's maybe portrayed. I think that it simply comes from a space where it's just a lack of generalization training. Right. I think that is moreover a clinical issue. I don't think that it's a like the the story that I just told about this this woman that I worked with. I think that's a pretty unique scenario. Sure. I think most of the time when it comes to prompt dependency, it comes from a space where it's simply a, a matter of problems with teaching multiple exemplars, teaching better exemplars, teaching more naturally occurring cues. Well, and that actually segues very nicely into talking about what have we learned as a field to help address the, the prompt dependency issue, which is some strategies include natural environment teaching, sometimes called NET or NET, which basically refers to using circumstances present in sort of opportune moments to teach I mean, you can try and engineer those as much as possible, obviously, but to rather than it be this like one on one sitting at a table, you know, one cue, one response type situation, it's more like let's go out into this situation and be it engineered or not and try and like teach you to respond to the cues as they exist that look more like what you're going to see in a sort of normal environment. Right. Another one, of course, is programming antecedents. So trying to set up ahead of time expectations and cues to to work that will facilitate I guess, a more flexible repertoire, one that's not so rigid. And then incidental teaching is basically similar to a natural environment teaching. It, it just whenever there's an opportunity presents itself to use as a teaching moment that you take that opportunity to help communicate something to an individual to allow them again to have a more flexible response to the things that we're trying to teach them. And so all of these are commonly used strategies that behavior analysts have employed to try and overcome this excessive prompt dependency or to avoid it altogether. And those don't work for every behavior or every situation. And also a lot of times people aren't trained to do all of these things. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with plenty of behavior analytic practitioners who are great at discrete trial teaching or discrete trial mm-hmm. training, but have a really hard time with NET. Like I, I personally learned when I was coming up, I learned I'm, I'm horrible at DTT. Mm. I've learned specifically the NET is really where my jam is. Like I can work oh, in cool. a natural environment and I'm like, this is you, you put me in a natural environment teaching. Here's all these opportunities like bam, bam, bam. Yeah. That's my learning history and my learning experience as a practitioner working in family homes and community-based services that makes the most sense. Sure. So for me, like, you know, when you work with some practitioners, they may never have experience with really good NET. You might not have good experience with these different models, But because the field is growing and there is such a need, you might get somebody who attempts this and does it wrong. Or just uh, not very well, at least. Not very well, yeah. You know, that's cool that you say that. My experience has been when you get to observe like a really masterful and uh, natural environment teaching performance from someone who's, who's like good at that, it is a wonder to behold. It is so cool to see someone just fluently and efficiently and just like... really capitalizing on a moment. And like, usually in my experience, when you get to see a learner who is, I guess, benefiting from or, or participating in natural environment teaching, it looks so engaging and it looks like fun and it looks interesting. And it, it's like, wow, like so clever that you thought to use this as an opportunity to teach this particular skill. Yeah. So I think it's, it's great that that's sort of your jam because I, I think it can be really difficult for a lot of people and being able to see someone who's like really fluent at that is a very inspiring thing to see. Yeah, it's a blast. I mean, like it's just there's so many opportunities in every single space that you can like use as a teachable moment. 
One of my favorite things was uh, I used to have this learner we were working on delays and reinforcement because, you know, like just as an example, within 10 seconds, if, if his if his specific thing that he asked for was not delivered, whether it was available or not, he's flipping tables, smashing tiles on the floor with his bare feet and knocking people out. So, you know, significant problem behavior. So like when we were working on getting him to kind of like tolerate longer delays and, and so I, he would ask for like chips and I'd have a bag of chips. I'd just have it with me. I'd bring it in as like. Uh, you know, like it was part of my lunch and I'd bring it in. He'd be like, I want chips. I'd be like, yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Give me a few seconds. Let me get some stuff set up and then I'll get some for you. And then that 10 seconds would hit and I'd be like, all right, let me get you some chips. And I would pretend I couldn't open the bag. <laughs> like I'd pretend like the bag was stuck. I'd be like, oh, oh you think, you know what? I, I'm trying really hard. You're doing such a good job waiting. Thank you so much. Ah, like, you know, and it was fun. <laughs> it was goofy. And we got that was a really easy way to kind of like naturally delay it right because yeah. what happens when you try to open a bag of cookies and like you can't open it well i mean that it was a really fun way to do it but it was something nice and simple and it it was really effective for him and also how, how often is it the case that when you're trying to do something and and you need to like be able to tolerate waiting for it that someone says okay wait and then right. yeah, you know, like that just doesn't happen so that's cool I, I like that a lot that's a cool example yeah so it's understandably frustrating as a parent or caregiver to feel like you still have just this enormous amount of work to do to get the person that you're caring for to do even basic things independently. And this is after spending hours and hours and sessions intended to teach them those very skills. And now you have to, I guess, pick up the mantle and sort of in between those sessions do a very similar thing. And so I can understand why that would feel like, you know, what are we doing here? What are we getting out of this? If if this is right. going to be this challenging and this much effort to get even the smallest independent response going. So, you know, I just want to acknowledge that that experience can be very real for a lot of people and it totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. This is common for like, you know, I mean, I have a teenager and I'm still like every now and again, I'm like, you should know how to do this. And now I'm prompting you how to do this. Like, like, like you, I, I totally get it. And, and that's, and that's actually like, it makes sense how prompts get shaped up, right? Like, because you, a lot of times what'll happen is you'll get frustrated with situation. You'll add an additional prompt and then it becomes like this, like kind of chained in LinkedIn type of thing where it's like the, the learner, like my daughter can do plenty of things by herself, but you know, it doesn't happen as fast as I would like it. So like, I've got to learn to tolerate, like, ah, maybe it doesn't need to happen that fast. She can, she can be okay and do this thing. Like I've added an additional prompt when it's not necessary. You know, are you concerned at some point your, your daughter's going to hear this podcast? Like, why are you talking about me all the time? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? No, I'm not because like, we've had these conversations. So like, it's nothing like, okay. uh, you know, like she and I have had the conversations and she's given me permission to share stories and stuff. So it's not like, okay. um, it's not like I'm sharing willy nilly and just being like, surprise, here you go. Like, you know, I, yeah. I, that would be, that would be awful. Like I would, I would feel so bad. <laughs> So I personally think this has gotten better. Um, I mean, I think that we have like a general consensus that this type of thing has gotten better with all the research that's out there specific to prompt dependencies, prompt fading, stimulus generalization, all that stuff. But it's still a very real issue for a lot of people. So we're not going to discount the fact that like maybe there are some folks who haven't learned how to do this well enough that it's still kind of become a pervasive issue. So, you know, while there is plenty of research and there's plenty of stuff to support like, hey, this is not a thing that should be happening. It's still does happen and still does happen often enough that it is a worthwhile critique of the field. Yeah, it's it's a real issue for a lot of people. We see you, we hear mm -hmm. you. Yeah. We're an auditory medium after all. 
<laughs> and so, you know, we acknowledge that it's out there. And as you said, like, I do, I agree that I feel like there have been a lot of improvements in this. I think that this is becoming a less prominent issue than it has been in the past. And that doesn't mean that we should stop, you know, and be like, well, we've sort of done our job. I think it, it means remain vigilant. We're on the right track. We'll continue to refine our methods to build improvements to or build toward improvement, I guess, to overcome the issue that that can occur when you have prompt dependency. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. I think we handled that. We good on that? Yeah, I feel I feel good about that. I mean, I think for a further discussion on it, like I would definitely go back to the generalization argument just to kind of hear that a little bit more, too, because I think that'll give a little bit more context and a little bit more information on this and kind of some different ways to go about it. But yeah, I think that I think that nails this one pretty well. All right. I feel pretty good. I guess if there's any take home points in there, uh, my thought is that just defining really quickly that this this is a dependency on specific cues. This looks like generally sort of rigid learning that is not applied appropriately a lot of the time. And so the there are some some methods that we've developed to help overcome this. And this is an issue that some people face. And I think another take home point is that this can occur in a lot of different spaces. I think that this is one of those things where with a growing field, the expectation on practitioners is quite large. And as a result, you've got folks that are maybe trying to do their best and just not doing it well enough because maybe they don't have the scope or the competency to work in that space just yet. And so you've got folks that are making these considerations, these treatment considerations without really thinking about larger implications without thinking about generalization, without thinking about how to fade prompts, because maybe they just haven't done it. Maybe there hasn't been a consideration for them. And so I think it's worth giving some practitioners some grace to work within that and to do better and to work towards doing less prompt dependent work. Awesome. Yeah. I think we, uh, we have some listener mail. Let's do it. Okay. So this one comes from Carrie, who has been in, in contact with us throughout these episodes has provided a lot of awesome feedback. She wrote in response to our more recent episode on generalization, where we, we got talking about anti-ableism as an orientation to a value that we have. And so she says, you all beat me to it and I couldn't have been happier. There was one spot when you were talking about the quality of life and I was all ready to say, who is defining this is your best life? And you beat me to it with your closing statement of ableism. Thank you for briefly addressing it, even though you'll give it proper time at a later date. I really, really appreciate that this feedback is landing on listening ears. I agree that the core of this really just comes down to A, are we taking an anti-ableist approach to these interventions, or B, are we being ableist when applying these interventions? Sure, there are some that just need to be tossed away, and I think she's talking about interventions to be yep. tossed away, Yeah, but good science can be poor practice if put in the hands of even a well-meaning ableist person, so bravo. I really appreciate this week's discussion. Thank you. And I want to re reiterate the point. Thank you, Carrie, for all of the feedback that you've given us. We actually yes. have invited Carrie and a previous guest, Dr. Megan Miller, to come on to speak about anti-ableism. Their feedback has just been very valuable and helpful in this discussion. It has been something that shaped up some of the episodes. I mean, yeah. when we have asked people to send in feedback and stuff, this is what we meant. And this is part of the discussion to help us refine these discussions, help us to amplify voices that are not getting the word out and to make sure that we are checking our biases. And, and so, Carrie, it, this has been fantastic. So we really, really appreciate you sending this this info in. Yes, this is uh, very great. And if you uh, if you would like to, dear listener, follow in the steps of Carrie, you, you too can reach us at info at www.podcast.com. As you can tell, we read these, we respond to them, we engage. 
We are more than happy to hear feedback and to take on that feedback where and when we can, when it, it really helps further the discussion. Yep, absolutely. So with that, let's do some recommendations. Recommendations. Recently, I discovered um, I'm not a big magazine guy. Like, that's not something I've ever been like, yes, I need this. <laughs> but I always find creative pursuits like DIY projects and stuff like that. Really fascinating. Sure. Because I think it takes a lot. It takes, a, I mean, this, our entire podcast is a DIY project. Fact. And it requires a lot of work and, and a lot of creativity and a lot of effort. And I really love that. And so I recently discovered a magazine called Whalebone Magazine. Weird. Yeah. It's real. It's a real strange title. And I was kind of like, what is this? And essentially it is like a creative pursuit that started as a t-shirt printing company that did this really cool graphic design, really cool art and would deliver t-shirts via a van in new york okay and so what they did was they started collaborating with artists collaborating with photographers they started doing all this stuff and putting together this really beautiful set of magazines that they, you can get a description subscription to they started doing a magazine it was like oh we're gonna do limited press and now they have like this actual magazine that comes out and uh recently i purchased the it's called the sea creature issue you can't see it but i'm gonna show abraham here this is what it looks like okay so i'm seeing a, a white a white cover whalebone in what kind of looks like Jurassic Park font all capitalized uh -huh. across the top and then some tentacles yeah. in sort of purplish black and white coming out from the bottom. That's, that's very cool. Art. I yep, like it. That's it. Is this, this isn't like an art magazine you said? Yeah, it's like an art magazine. So yeah, so this, this particular issue, it's an art magazine. It talks about um, different types of sea creatures. It's some really cool periodicals, really great photography. Some of the infographics in it are designed really well. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's, beautifully done um if you're a graphic design nerd and like just really like visually striking magazines like this is not like us weekly i mean it is beautifully beautifully done by creatives and like independent artists and it's just really wonderful to dig into so if you're interested you can check it out at whalebonemag.com okay they do a lot of really cool things i mean they've got like a specific watch they've collaborated on to design huh. that's like featured in it like they do a lot of really cool things so it's definitely worth checking out Am I going to see on the cover of Whalebone like 15 signs that you might be a, a consumer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's totally like BuzzFeed stuff. Like it's fantastic. No, it's they do a lot of different ones. They did like a hot sauce one. I, I particularly Fun. like marine biology. So like the sea creature sure. one just spoke to me. Um, yeah. But they do a hot sauce one. They'll do like specific cities. Like they do a lot of really cool things with it. Nice. That's a good recommendation. Yeah. All right. I am going to recommend... As we have done every time that this happens, but I'm going to recommend <laughs> Loki, the TV show. Yes. This is the new Disney plus Marvel show about the character Loki at the time for people who have seen this. So I guess spoilers for the movie Endgame. when they go back in time to 2012, Loki is able to snatch the Tesseract and disappear through a space gateway when he's all chained up and this TV show picks up at, at that point. The show is not yet concluded at the time of us recording this, nor will it be at the time that this episode comes out. But so far, I have been really, really enjoying it. I think it is. I mean, there's a lot of twists and turns. It's a, a lot of really cool, fantastical elements. The costumes are great. The sets are really amazing. There's Easter eggs galore. And I just I've I've really been enjoying all, everything I've seen out of it so far. 
Yeah, one of my favorite things about this show is the aesthetic. Like, it looks really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing that Marvel does really well. It's like every show and every series, like everything they do just looks uniquely like that thing. Yeah. Like, and this doesn't look like any other Marvel thing that they've done so far. It's got this weird, like, 70s aesthetic, like 60s and 70s style aesthetic with like this really cool futuristic kind of look to it, too. Like, it's really bizarre. Also, I... Owen Wilson is great in this. He is. I would not have thought Owen Wilson would have made his way into the MCU and, and we have him. Yeah. And he's really, really, really good. I mean, essentially, if you're not familiar, like he's just playing kind of like a, uh, I guess you could describe him as a time detective. Yeah. I think that's fair. Like an agent. So, yeah. Yeah. He's great. Highly recommend. I've, I've been really enjoying it. I mean, it, it could, <laughs> it could jump the shark because it's still fairly <laughs> early on in the number of episodes but at the time that this releases the day that this episode releases they should be on episode four i believe yes i think so okay <laughs> like, i think do, that's what doing, it the works. Math, doing the math <laughs> cool anyway that's my recommendation do you have anything else shane nope i think that covers this one Thank you so much for recording with me today. Thank you, everyone who is out there listening. Thank you to all of those amazing people who have been writing into us and giving us feedback, especially today. I'm highlighting Carrie and all of her many, many contributions. If you would like to support us, you can join this list of just the coolest people I'm going to read. Justine, Megan, Mike, and Shauna, thank you so much for being Patreon supporters. When you join us on Patreon, you get all these special perks and bonuses like early access to our episodes, PDF versions of our notes. You get to join our Discord server if you'd like to chat with other like-minded folks. There's just all kinds of benefits you can check out. Uh, We have some new artwork coming along to bolster those benefits that will look really fun. And in the meantime, you can reach us on all the social media platforms or email us, and we're happy to hear from you. And I think with that, we are out. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. See ya. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. I expect you to sing every time. (laughs) (laughs) That's the, I love it. I love it.